welcome to CMEX podcast from the Doha Forum in Qatar. I'm Charlotte Leslie, the director of CMEC, and in this podcast I'll be speaking to various delegates at the forum and getting their views on the global situation, the regional situation, including obviously the ongoing horrific conflict in Israel, Palestine and Gaza, and also the implications of that and other regional developments for the UK and the West. My name is Chris Doyle. I'm the director of the Council for Arab-British Understanding. Chris, briefly, what does the Council for Arab-British Understanding do and what brings you here to the Doha Forum? The Council for Arab-British Understanding, Kabu, is a cross-party organisation that tries to promote a British Middle East policy that is rooted in the values of international law, human rights and support for conflict resolution in the Middle East. Coming to the Doha Forum, which has been going on now for well over 20 years, is a really vital opportunity to meet with a very diverse array of regional politicians and civil society figures, but also broader American and others from around the world. And it's one of the few places that this happens, where you can actually meet Americans and Iranians, Turks and others, and you get an extraordinary array of views. It's always been important to listen to voices from this region, but even more so nowadays, because what we have seen in recent years is an ever-widening gap in perceptions between many Western politicians and many politicians in the region. We need to narrow that. We need to build a dialogue to try to see how we can handle some of the protracted conflicts and crises in this region that have impacted Britain. I think of Syria, Yemen, Libya, and of course right now, Palestine, the whole issue of Gaza. There is a huge amount of anger in the region about what has happened, about the position of many Western countries, including Britain. A sense that we are applying a series of double standards, that we deal with the issue of Russia and Ukraine in a very different way to dealing with the Israeli-Palestinian issue. They see the images coming from Gaza. They see that 85% of Palestinian population of Gaza has been displaced, the huge number of fatalities. And they do not understand why Britain hasn't been not just calling for a ceasefire, but really pushing for it. It's really important now to engage, to talk, but importantly to listen, to hear their views as to why there is this anger. Because at the end of all of this, we are near neighbours. We have a lot of dependency through trade, security, cultural relations. And it's really important that British politicians, those in civil society, do nourish these links and try to build a better understanding of this region, try to make sure that we find ways forward out of these crises rather than allowing them to fester for too long. We've been very good at allowing these conflicts just to linger, to fester, and that always brings huge amount of downsides, of negativity, of extremism, refugee flows as well. We have to be better at understanding the dynamics in this area of the world. Parking for one side, in a sense, what is going on in Israel, Gaza? What is the impact of the West's influence and the perception of the West of our response, do you think? Have you seen surprise at our response? Have we lessened our global influence for the future? But how do people see us now? There's a huge amount of anger and disappointment at the position of Britain and the United States in particular. A sense that these two countries have 
pushed issues of international law and human rights so often on the global stage, but when it is one of their allies, they go all silent. And I think there is a real danger that the so-called global south really feels that this should no longer apply to them, that they are not going to be listening the next time when major Western politicians come knocking on the door and start talking about the international rules-based order, about human rights, about all of these things that have been ridden roughshod over in Gaza. So I think there is a real serious challenge to Britain's reputation right now. We used to have a reputation for being the sensible, grown-up party in the room, the one that would actually push for the United Nations to be respected, for the laws of war to be respected. Simon, we've, we've had a busy conference so far and it's only been a day. We've been at a lot of fringes. People are no longer what buying meetings this so far have stood out to you? Or what are you looking forward to for tomorrow? They see well, I find the first panel a really interesting sense that as, a, has as a British observer. Uh, and it will be of to the our cost at the United Nations, the, the American order veto and the British abstention. If we don't stick to, to that, if we don't honour it, criticism, quite then the laws of war will shrivel away. And we could all be the losers for that. Sobering, but interesting to hear. Now we're speaking um, here from Qatar, sort of from Doha, up a bit and the, the last time many people will have seen or uh, heard of Qatar, Doha on their news, will have been when Hamas leaders were celebrating the terror attacks, the atrocities that happened on October. Seventh. How do you justify being here? In Syria, when Hamas left Chechnya, Syria in Ukraine, with the, Syrian uh, regime, I'm still looking forward to hearing, the United States uh, asked Qatar to host Hamas Graham. in Doha. Uh, because the reason was very deliberate. They did not want Hamas to go response to Iran to an American statement or to another or an American country position. where they would have no influence. So uh, on, the idea on, behind this it all very, very was that Qatar, by hosting them, would exert some form in Obviously, with the atrocities in October, the horrors of those attacks, that has been brought into question. Conference. But I don't think anybody is suggesting that Qatar has had anything to do with it or knew about it at all. Um, I wish there was but a bit more Q&A. Uh, I think uh, it is quite nice they to have a been sometimes challenge the panellists. But, uh, behind but the otherwise, I think Qatar, out. as I have We've said, had some hostages released, uh, hostage thank God. Situation in Gaza. But also, uh, as I think they're going to be very important in and I think these trying to bring are, about eventually some sort of ceasefire, some sort of political process and that could allow for a different in for Gaza. And we're going to need that. We are new going to need new, those interlocutors. Qatar has always prided itself on talked to pretty much everyone. So it has had relations, not formal relations with Israel. It has relations with Iran. It has relations with Russia. It has relations with the West. And of course, it has the Americans' largest military base in the Middle East. Its ability, therefore, to talk to everyone is something that it has deployed and used quite effectively over the years. I think for critics would point out that at times during the Arab Spring it became too much involved in some of the, the conflicts and I think it has moved back into this position of being that mediating power, a small state where people can meet together to try to resolve differences. In nearly all of these conflicts, Le uh, you know, with Lebanon, Palestine, Yemen, Syria, in all of these situations Qatar has tried to play that role in recent years and of course perhaps most notably and to a lot of praise from the United States over Afghanistan and, and the way they helped with the evacuations from Afghanistan. What about the funding to Hamas that Qatar delivers and where that goes? 
the funding came about because essentially the humanitarian situation in Gaza was going to collapse and a system was developed between the United States, Israel and Qatar whereby Qatar would provide cash, it would go through Israeli banks to fund local governance within Gaza. So it wasn't direct aid to Hamas in the sense of what Iran has been giving to Hamas in terms of developing its military capabilities, its rockets, etc. It was more about, after all those wars on Gaza, trying to allow the basic infrastructure for civilian population to flourish. So it did that with the full agreement of both the United States and Israel. Israel knew exactly what funds were going into Gaza and where and to who. And where do Russia and Iran, they're very separate entities, but where do Russia and Iran now sit in the Gaza crisis? And in fact, China, who were very, in a fringe earlier, they were very keen to say that there should be a ceasefire, that it was the Americans that blocked it, the West is being pictured as those who are blocking a humanitarian solution to the Gaza crisis. Has this been of global influence benefit to Russia, China and Iran? I think one can imagine that Russian and Chinese leaders are, are very happy about this crisis in that they can see that the United States in particular has given a green light for Israel to violate all sorts of international laws and by doing that, including imposing a, a siege on a civilian population, Remember that this is what Russia was accused of in Ukraine and in Syria. So they see the undermining of that rules-based order entirely to their benefit. Russia, because of what it's doing in Ukraine, and maybe uh, let's uh, you know, remind ourselves that probably other ambitions you know, in Eastern Europe, in the Baltic. China, of course, has its own ambitions in the South China Seas uh, and elsewhere. So the undermining of the rule of law is totally to, the, to their benefit. Iran is somewhat different. Iran obviously has specific ambitions within this region. Often it has used its proxies in various countries to trigger instability from which it tries to profit. Iran as an actor has always tried to weaken central governance in the region, build up its own proxies as we've seen in Lebanon, we've seen in Yemen, we've seen in Syria and we do see it in Palestine. It's their way of trying to undermine particularly American influence in the region to undermine some of their allies and of course there's still the ongoing debate to what extent Iran orchestrated the 7th of October tax or did it just have a behind the scenes role we can't be too sure of this what else will Iran have in store is it holding Hezbollah back or is it actually Hezbollah refusing to do Iran's bidding is that why we haven't seen that northern front really opening up but we're certainly seeing Iranian backed groups in Iran and Syria attack American interests and of course the Houthis have been attacking shipping in the Red Sea. It's a very risky environment we're in at the moment and that is why we need to get control of it again and the only way you can do that is through a ceasefire and then triggering a political process to try to resolve it. If we don't have a ceasefire the risks of it sparring out of control across this region where western targets could get hit is very real and very, very dangerous, where all the diplomacy in the world will not be able to put it all back in the box again and we will be left in a very uncertain, unstable and painful situation going forward. Now, finally, on the other side, people would say the attacks of the 7th of October were truly horrible. 
Hamas does not want Israel to exist. This is just a fact. What was Israel supposed to do? How can it coexist with Hamas? We heard that some are saying that Hamas must be part of some political solution. The West, the USA and Great Britain would say, well, look, we can't have a ceasefire because that will be a gift to Hamas. We have to eradicate Hamas. That's a sine qua non. What do you make of those arguments, which are very compelling, and how effective is this strike being at eradicating Hamas, in your estimation? The attacks of the 7th of October are obviously appalling, and I think there is a consensus, certainly in Europe and North America, about how appalling those attacks are. But that does not and should not inform the criticism of Israeli subsequent actions, because all those actions must be governed by international law. But also... As countries like Britain, who are not party to this conflict, we should be able to see the bigger picture than those parties that are engulfed in a very bitter and violent conflict in which there's been a huge amount of loss in life. And to realize that there's no military solution to this. So Israel can bomb Gaza, it can create situations of untold pain, huge loss of life and destruction. But the end of it all, there are going to be 7 million Palestinians who are either living in Israel or in the territories it occupies. They're going to have to live with them. The levels of anger and bitterness are going off the charts right now. And you will see Hamas beginning to recruit from an increasingly large batch of probably young men who will basically feel they've got nothing to lose and start actually buying into their reasoning for all of this. It's illogical to allow this to continue. It's not actually in Israel's best interests. For those who are concerned about Israeli security, This is not going to help. It is also undermining Israel's relations with the region. It is undermining the accords that signed, the peace agreements that they've signed. This is not going to a good place for Israel at all. Hamas, in carrying out these attacks, almost certainly knew what would happen to Gaza and their compatriots in Gaza. And for that, as well as those attacks, it should be widely condemned. I mean, they have triggered a really brutal bombing of 2.3 million civilians in Gaza. They're paying the price for Hamas's crimes, as well as those Israelis who were killed and who've been taken hostage. So it doesn't deserve to rule in the Gaza Strip. That argument is, is absolutely true. But you can't eradicate it. It's an ideology. You might be able to defeat it politically. It will be very difficult to bring about a situation in which Hamas doesn't have some form of association with a political deal going forward. Crystal of Carbu, thank you very much indeed. Hello Charlotte, I'm Jane Kinnanmont, Policy and Impact Director at the European Leadership Network and that is a pan-European network of leaders in security policy from across different backgrounds and political viewpoints working to reduce the risks of existential conflict. That's a pretty huge role. Can you tell me a bit about what you've been working on most recently? So what we do is bring together people with experience of complex political and security problems, especially nuclear arms control, try to link them up with younger generation experts and craft ideas for ways forward. So a lot of what we've been looking at over the last year has been about how you try to get nuclear diplomacy going again with Russia, with Iran, and potentially with China, which seems to be the one place where there is some arms control momentum at the moment. 
So we're here at the Doha Forum and there's a remarkable variety of people here from all sorts of geopolitical backgrounds. You've been here before at the Doha Forum. What can you tell us about the people who come here and the value of such diversity? So I've actually been coming to different incarnations of this event for about 19 years when Doha was a much, much smaller place and every time I come here it seems to have changed. But for me it's a great chance to hear a lot of civil society voices from the region and on the region. So probably more than some of the security conferences here, you do get a lot of academics, a lot of think tankers from different parts of the Arab world that will give you a different flavour than just listening to the government, as impressive as the cast list of ministers is. Now, last year, Zelensky caused a stir by opening the event, and this year we have the Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov here. How does that work? So last year, Qatar was kind of sticking its neck out compared to other Gulf countries by giving more of a voice to Ukraine than others were keen to do at the time, although they have always had a good relationship with Russia like throughout this whole thing. But I do think there is a change of tone now. I was also here in Doha a few months ago speaking at an Al Jazeera conference about Ukraine and, you know, how it is totally in breach of international law and the UN Charter to invade another small country. And it's much harder to make some of those arguments today in the context of the war that is underway in Gaza. Now, obviously, those two conflicts are very different. You cannot directly copy and paste what's going on in Ukraine to what is going on in Gaza. But regardless of the origins of the conflict, the laws of what you do in war are are something where people tend to feel that the West is not standing up for what the West likes to think of as Western values. So, you know, even earlier this year or last year when I've been in the region, one of the things that I heard frequently was, you know, why doesn't international law seem to apply so much in the Middle East? And that is also about still the legacy of the invasion of Iraq, but it's got more and more intense today. We've just been hearing from the foreign ministers of Qatar and of Jordan about their fears about radicalisation of a new generation as people watch horrific images because, you know, apart from Syria, it's been very rare that we've really seen wars live streamed in the way that they are today. And the knock-on effect of that on the psychology of a younger generation, it's going to take a long time to play out, but it's, it's not going to be good. Talking about trauma, many people will say, look, you're here in Doha. Doha, Qatar hosts Hamas. We saw pretty awful videos of Hamas leaders apparently celebrating the horrific slaughter and murder of Israeli citizens. Hamas is an anti-Israeli political party. And here we are in a country that hosts and ostensibly supports Hamas. Many people will be saying, what are you doing here? So Qatar pitches itself as a mediator partly because it does have an office for Hamas, it has an office for the Taliban as well, it has faced a lot of criticism for those things, including in the past from some of its neighbours. At the same time, the US in particular has found it quite valuable that Qatar is able to talk to the Hamas members and perhaps exert some influence over them. And the same has been true with the Taliban. So we've seen, you know, Israeli 
American, European people coming to Qatar specifically to engage the Qataris on mediation in the current context and especially over the hostages. I do think that you know, Qatar will be under more pressure over its hosting of Hamas depending on what happens. I think they have a strong incentive to try to help the rest of the world with the, the hostage situation, both for humanitarian reasons, but also to demonstrate that there is some kind of purpose to having those relations and to having the dialogue. At the end of the day, the Americans probably feel that it's better that some of those leaders are accessible in Doha than that they are all solely in Iran or Syria. Jane, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us. I am Dominic Grieve. I'm a former Conservative Member of Parliament and former Attorney General of England and Wales. And I'm at the Forum, having been invited by Lord Thomas, former Lord Chief Justice, and now the President of the International Commercial Court of Qatar. And we have done a session with myself, an American academic called Dalia Fami, a former Attorney General of Uganda and now a judge, Bart Katuribi, and myself on the use of international arbitration to resolve territorial disputes. Now, for those of us who were not at your event, what were the broad points that you made and what was the general dialogue and debate about? The general dialogue was about can they be useful? And what are the circumstances that may make them practical and which are the circumstances which won't? And I think the general view was that if you have a country which is signed up to the international legal order, then its willingness to allow arbitration in the case of a territorial dispute is usually much easier than if you've got a country which is keeping itself outside of it. Peer group pressure often matters. And then, of course, there's countries' national interest. Smaller states may well like arbitration because without arbitration, they're very unlikely to get redress on a territorial matter. Very big countries will not normally accept arbitration because, as we saw with China and the South China Sea, in those circumstances, they just ignore court conclusions about maritime rights, for example, in China's case. So we were looking at a number of examples of this and seeing that actually it can help resolve disagreements. Equally, there are limits. And then we had a more general discussion as to how do you encourage the growth of the international legal system and a willingness to accept it. And we had quite an interesting discussion about the fact that big states stay outside. America's had a tendency to do that. China certainly does. We're big beasts in the jungle. Therefore, we can ignore all this. And, of course, we also move to looking at issues like the International Criminal Court and the fact that it's often perceived by smaller states to be aimed at them, whereas bigger states can misbehave very badly and there is no redress at all. So it was a general discussion, and I hope it also ended on an optimistic note, because although one can be cynical, if you actually look at state behaviour, particularly since the end of the Second World War, whilst there are egregious examples of countries misbehaving, annexing other sovereign territory, going to war. Actually, we are, if you look at an overall graph of the human condition, we are much better off today than we were a hundred years ago. So I think one's got to look optimistically at the growth of international order and accept that like in all such human matters, it's going to be a bit slow. To what extent was there a feeling, if the graph is positive mostly, that we might be at the base of a very steep 
decline or, or rise, however you're, you're marking the graph, on that order falling apart. So it's been okay so far, but... We certainly got um, a number of examples which are really serious. Clearly, Russia's invasion of the Ukraine is a gross violation of the international legal order. Russia recognised Ukraine in its old boundaries in 1994 and then decides to rip them up and annex large chunks of Ukraine's sovereign territory. It started in 2014 and they're now at war. So that is clearly a very depressing aspect. There are other examples, clearly talking in the context of what's been going on here with Gaza, the insolubility of the Israeli-Palestinian confrontation is an example of a serious failure of the international order to facilitate or even coerce a little bit of solution. But against that, you've also got to put the examples of countries that have resolved their differences. I think people fail to realise just how many African states have had boundary disputes which they have essentially been able to resolve. The other thing we were looking at was humanitarian law and the extent to which if a country does intervene in another country's affairs, what are the rules on which it should be based? And there again, there are terrible examples of breaches of it. But equally, there are also examples of countries showing some attention to meeting humanitarian law standards. So, yes, I am. I mean, I have to accept most people present at this conference looking at the current state of the world are going to be a bit gloomy. But I wouldn't allow the gloom to overtake us completely because there are also signs that despite all this, the international legal order is continuing because it's to the manifest advantage of countries to adhere to it. Clearly, the risk is there that if more chaos and disorder comes and more countries violating their own treaties they've signed manifest themselves and we might see a complete collapse. But I I think that's too pessimistic. And I suppose you don't see what goes right, you only see what goes wrong. Uh, Yes, and uh, on the whole, the press, perfectly understandably, focuses on what goes wrong. And we're right to focus on what's going wrong. There's an awful lot going wrong, but there's quite a lot still going right. On those countries that don't comply, you talked about big states, big beasts in the global jungle, feeling they're almost literally bigger than law itself. Is there a difference between, for example, a large state like China, which hasn't pretended to be an architect of the kind of legal system that we have today, and a country like America, which its critics might say is in a very different position because it was America and the West that devised this very system, so it's a different thing if they don't comply with it. Well, it's certainly depressing if the United States doesn't comply with it. The United States helped set up the International Criminal Court and then it didn't accept its jurisdiction. And whilst one can understand why they may have chosen to do that, it doesn't send out a very good signal. Whereas China, in truth, is largely outside of much of the international rules-based system, even if it sometimes claims it's within it. And it can misbehave very badly. And the truth is there's almost nothing that can be done about it. Do you see being at this conference gives us a great opportunity to hear from perspectives from those we don't often hear, particularly from the global south? And there was a conversation on about BRICS. Do you think, for example, BRICS may be the start of a different kind of world order rule of law? Because that was certainly even obliquely mentioned. Do you see that happening? I do. I do sense it. We're in a country that has, because of its wealth, you have to look around Qatar to see that it has come on extraordinarily rapidly and is beginning to impose its own identity very clearly, may not be perfect, about how it views the international rules-based system. 
and I have to say, in many aspects of it, I find listening to the foreign minister, for example, this morning, I found myself in great agreement with a lot of what he was saying, including some of his critique. That was the foreign minister for, for Qatar. Now, in contrast, it is quite interesting that there are hardly any Americans at this conference. And there are some people who are notable by their absence. I don't really think China is particularly well represented, although there are one or two people from Chinese think tanks. So there is a slight sense, and I'd never come to this conference before, of very much listening to the region and, to a lesser extent, Africa, and perhaps a bit Latin America. So it's not really BRICS, it, it's something slightly different. And I think it's quite healthy to get that, and it's quite interesting to be getting it in the absence of those other actors. Dominic Grieve, thank you very much indeed. My name is Ibrahim Olabi. I am a British Syrian barrister that works on international crime linked to Syria and uh, Ukraine more recently. Um, I also uh, am on the board of the Syrian British Consortium, which is a group of Syrians who have been there before the uprising and came after to help inform UK policy when it comes to Syria from a UK perspective. And what particular areas of policy are you looking to work on? Specifically, I think, in the kind of Syria scene, we don't often have the luxury of choosing which policies because of the nature of the conflict, which is not a conflict only, it's a crime scene. So the policies that I personally focus on are linked to accountability, the use of chemical weapons, Captagon, the drug that's now is emerging in Syria, sanctions... So trying to really deal with this crime scene and, and, you know, justice and accountability generally for the implications that this has on Syrians inside Syria and them staying inside Syria, Syrians abroad and their ability to return, but also norms as we know them, which as we have seen and as has President Zelensky constantly reminded us that when Russia managed to get away with its crimes in Syria, they felt emboldened to do the same thing in Ukraine. It's a a clear demonstration that when it comes to a certain conflict, it might be, or a policy relating to a certain conflict might be geographically contained, although in Syria it is not. But the implications of that from a kind of international order perspective is definitely not contained. So your work involves both Syria and Ukraine? I started working on Syria from a very young age and I only worked on Syria because I wanted to kind of push as much as I can. And then a few weeks after the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, I got a call from people that I was assisting, uh, an international NGO, and they said, we're helping this new group that's working on Ukraine. Would you mind sharing some of your experience dealing with the Russians and the crimes and, and so on? And at that moment, I felt, you know, I've never worked on anything other than Syria, but at that moment, I felt a sense of not just solidarity, but a kind of a shared, not just goal, but, a, but, but, but more of a shared outcome, a shared consequence, a shared future between Syria and Ukraine if we manage to hold Russia to account in Ukraine which obviously Russia is the reason, one of the reasons why Assad is still in power. The other reason is Western inaction, but one of the main reasons that the regime is still in power is, is Russia. But a sense of solidarity and saying, if my trauma, my difficult experiences can be helpful, oddly, for someone else, for another cause, similar cause, complementary cause, then it's my cause. And that's why I started also assisting with Ukraine. 
We're speaking here from the Doha Forum in Qatar. What's been your experience of the forum? What are your key takeaways? And particularly with regard to how the position of the West is perceived here. This forum comes at a very critical time with the kind of full-blown conflict in the Middle East. And I think an interesting time to bring polar opposites' ideas into a safe space, dare I say, where there is no cancel culture, there is no censorship. Uh, People from different sides were able to speak their minds freely and discuss what they think is important. What was very interesting is the Western perception wasn't just portrayed as Western, or the perception of the West. What preceded any sort of perception of the West was the usage of international law, order, which are the words that often Western countries used. And so the perception was kind of intertwined with if you are countries that cared and have been caring and calling out perpetrators wherever they are, whoever they are, and have been for the last 20-odd years on whichever conflict, then you need to maintain a single standard when dealing with any war crime that you said are war crimes when you signed those treaties, with any judicial system that you supported and funded and referred to country situations to. And that helps you. That is not just a matter of having the moral high ground. If you don't care about the moral high ground, that's fine, that's up to you. But that's how you maintain your position beyond Europe. That's how you maintain your position with the East, with the West, with African countries, with Latin American countries. Your perception matters because for people to listen to you, they need to really feel that you are principled, that you're a person, a country that sticks to your words in that sense. I think that is now being challenged quite strongly, as we've seen in the Doha Forum, by countries and representatives of countries from different parts of the world. To give in, as you just... I mean, look look at Russia and Iran. It's been tainted as the bad actor for so long. And now they're managing somehow to make a comeback. Since October 7th. If you just want to uphold the single standard in Syria and Palestine, in in, in Libya, in in, in Yemen, just so that the Russians don't have the political ammunition, then do it just for that. Ibrahim, thank you very much indeed for your time. I'm Lina Khatib. I'm the director of the SOAS Middle East Institute. Lina, we're here at the Doha Forum. This isn't your first Doha Forum, am I right? No, I've been to this forum a few times. Definitely this year there is one big topic that everyone is talking about, which is the war between Hamas and Israel and what it means for the region and international efforts that need to happen to end this war, as well as regional efforts that are already happening to try to end the war. We've heard the inevitable criticism of the West and the way the West is handling things. Has this issue hit people in the region and the Gulf by surprise? Because this was an issue, the Palestinian issue is one that had being swept under the rug, many people might say. Is this a surprise to people who are here? I think it was a surprise to a lot of people. A lot of stakeholders had regarded the Israel-Palestine conflict as having become a low-level conflict that could be perhaps contained. And at the same time, they had other priorities, national priorities, that they were focusing their energies and resources on. 
No one really expected war to flare out between Hamas and Israel in this way. Of course, both sides had engaged in escalation previously on several occasions, but not like this. This is war in the full sense of the word, and no one really saw it coming. To what extent do you think Saudi Arabia's proclaimed willingness to move closer to Israel and normalize with Israel has prompted this? I think this is one of the contributing factors behind the timing of the Hamas attack that happened on October 7. But I wouldn't say it's the only reason or even the primary reason. But it's definitely one of the important geopolitical elements in the picture. And of course, it's not in Hamas's interest for there to be normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia, particularly that Saudi Arabia had been talking to the Palestinian Authority in context of normalization talks and not Hamas. So Hamas did not want to be politically excluded. Where does this leave Saudi Arabia? It had opened up a front with Israel and has now retracted, many might say, to be unilaterally supportive of the rights of Palestinians. Is it now in a position to be part of what everyone's calling the day after tomorrow? I think, if anything, this war has strengthened the bargaining position of Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia was never going to give up on Palestine anyway as as an issue, and this is for a number of reasons. One of the reasons is that it is Saudi Arabia that is the custodian of the Arab Peace Initiative. And Saudi Arabia wasn't going to just give Israel a freebie, so to speak, and normalize without having anything uh, given to the Palestinians. Now it's in an even stronger position because it cannot move forward with normalization without reactivation of the Arab Peace Initiative and basically having a peace process that leads to a two-state solution. Again, how would you answer listeners who might say, well, great, Qatar hosts Hamas and provides an interlocutor for the West, but also supports Hamas financially? And wouldn't it be within Qatar's interest to maintain Hamas because then they maintain their USP as an interlocutor? Is that a fair criticism? Well, let's also not forget that Qatar maintains relations with all other Palestinian factions as well. It has a relationship with the Palestinian Authority. It has relationships with members of the Knesset who are of uh, Arab or Palestinian kind of descent. So Qatar doesn't limit itself to just Hamas. If it had, then it wouldn't be able to play the role of mediator. It would simply be another party in the conflict. So I think people need to look at Qatar as a very pragmatic player that has, I think, a useful role to play and that the international community is making use of. And how about the funding, the fact that Hamas is funded by Qatar and the criticism that goes into things that are not schools and hospitals? How, does that, how is that funding allowed to come from Qatar to Hamas? Once again, we have Israel facilitating that funding and news reports have now, you know, shown again and again that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was one of the people playing a major role in actually asking Qatar to send funding to Hamas because in his uh, kind of view, having Hamas is useful because this is a way to maintain political divisions amongst Palestinians and that is something uh, that works to his advantage he has been very clear that he is not interested in a two-state solution. So having Hamas there works towards that goal. So again, it's not as simple as Qatar just deciding to fund Hamas on its own. You also have the Israeli government under Netanyahu playing a key role there. 
And does that undermine the Palestinian Authority? Unfortunately, the Palestinian Authority has been undermined over the years. Part of this is to do with internal divisions within the Palestine Authority. But at the same time, Netanyahu has wanted the Palestine Authority to be weak. The international community's ignoring of the Israel-Palestine conflict has also not helped the position of the uh, Palestinian Authority. And now there's an issue with succession because of the political divisions within the Palestinian Authority. However, the the current war is, I think, resurrecting debate within the Palestinian Authority about the need for Palestinian unity. Lina Khatib, thank you very much indeed. And I have bumped into Lieutenant General Sir Simon Mayle. Simon, how are you? Can you tell our listeners a bit about yourself? Well, lovely. Charlotte, very good to see you. Lovely to be here at the Doha Forum. As you know, I was a former general in the British Army, 40 years a professional soldier, and finished my career as the Defence Senior Advisor for the Middle East. So very appropriate to still be sort of in the saddle of Middle Eastern affairs at a particularly perilous time for the region. How is this different, if it is, from Doha forums you've been at before? It's large, it's very well attended, and each Doha forum takes place in a different context. And but for the events of the 7th of October, it's extraordinary to think what the theme of this would have been. It probably would have been issues of multilateralism and the global south and the BRICS. And, but I think more of the focus would have been on China, Russia, the war in Ukraine. But the events of the 7th of October, the Hamas attack on Israel and the Israeli response since then have really, really set up a very interesting context. And emotions inevitably are running high. But the debate has been carried on, as one would imagine, in very considered terms. Uh, But undoubtedly, positions are quite strongly held, which will come as no surprise to any of your viewers or listeners. You've got a very long-standing background in the Middle East. You're an author of a book that's just been published last year, I believe. Can you tell me a bit about that book? Yes, it it was a sort of melange of a family story, a military memoir and autobiography but largely using that as a scaffold to explain the complexity of the modern Middle East by breaking down what is a geographical term, a rather lazy geographical term, into the issues of history, uh, geography, yes, religion, ethnicity, confessionalism, largely aimed at the layperson who finds the Middle East extremely complicated. And I think in many ways it was well-reviewed that it has achieved that in making people feel a little more confident they can understand some of the complexity of the issues they see on television every day or read about in the press or listen to on the radio. If you were still writing that book now and had to encompass the events since October the 7th and preceding it into that book, how would you explain that to a lay viewer or listener who may have had one side expressed them very strongly but may not understand the other side? I think it would be difficult, and I will confess to being fairly matter-of-fact about the issues of the foundation of the State of Israel, the complexity and the sensitivity of the whole subject, because it does have such an impact in modern history, of course. I would almost certainly, I suspect, have started the book with the events of the 7th of October. As it was, I actually started the book with the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, an equally complex issue for policymakers and politicians to have to address. So I don't think I could have avoided putting front and centre the fact that the 7th of October and events since then have not remade the Middle East, but have undoubtedly 
reinforced, hardened lines of difference, conversation, added to the fragility of, of all sorts of other themes that are running through this very complex area. And of course, events like that have a massive emotional and moral connotation as well as geopolitical. Brings me to your next book, which I believe is called House of War, which you're writing at the moment. It seems to be unfortunately quite an apt title for our times. Tell me a bit about what you're working on now. This is more a historical book and it takes some of the actions and themes that I had in the, in the book Soldier in the Sand. But it's really focused on, the headline is, is eight great sieges and battles that define the clash between Islam and Christendom. But the reality is, of course, it's much more complex than that because although the headline is Muslims fighting Christians in various areas like Jerusalem, Accra, Constantinople, Rhodes, Malta, Lepanto, Vienna, the reality is the context was a lot of the Muslim world was at war with itself. Ottomans were fighting Safavids, Sunnis were fighting Shia, Turks were fighting Mamluk Egyptians. And, of course, in the Christian world, Catholics were against the Orthodox, Catholics were against Protestants, the Valois monarchy of France was against the Habsburgs. And so very often people were far more focused on conflicts within their own religion. And then just occasionally you get headline events that spark up and give the impression that this is all about a sort of monolithic ideological clash. So I hope, again, an interesting subject, which if people read, they will also just give them a lot more confidence about the, how they see the various resonances in modern Iran, in modern Turkey, in modern Egypt, and in the modern Arabic-speaking world. And those empathies through religion, ethnicity, you know, are still there, which is why the events of 7th of October and the response to it have such wide resonance across the world, let alone the political aspects that uh, divide people into camps. Do you think that the West's response since October the 7th has changed for example, the Global South's view of the West or the region we are in the Middle East, their view of the rest? I think it may have reinforced it, to be honest with you. I think it's been a, a sort of two-decade slide from the certainties that followed, I suppose, the response to 9-11 to the misjudgments and misfooting in Afghanistan and, and Iraq. And I think the narrative of the West, you know, again, of a amorphous term is lacking, has less credibility and is less compelling than it used to be in the face of issues like the rise of China, increasing assertiveness of countries like India and the maturity of countries in, certainly in the Gulf. And so I think, I think it just marks a change at the moment. Well, it's been an extremely busy conference. We've heard from speakers who we may not normally hear in an environment like this in the UK or the West. We've heard from the Russian Foreign Minister, Sergei Lavrov. We've heard from the Iranian Foreign Minister and a number of global voices. And the key theme that has really emerged is that the global South is very much a force to be reckoned with. And the BRICS nations are looking to the G7 and NATO and asking is this world order a world order that is going to continue for the foreseeable or is it time for a changing of the guard? And there is very much a feeling here of a changing of the guard. And I think it's essential. And a theme that's emerged throughout the conversations I've had is that the West really understands this and rises to meet those challenges. I'm Charlotte Leslie and I've been speaking to you from the Doha Forum in Qatar. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.